I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Second Chance, a podcast that explores the notion of second chance, What is a second chance? Who deserves a second chance? And who decides whether someone is worthy of a second chance? My name is Raphael Rowe, and in this episode, I speak with the mother of a teenager convicted of murder. Murder committed by teenagers is shocking and often attracts a media frenzy. The facts and details are often lost by the headlines that create what criminologists describe as moral panics. These can trigger the creation of laws or principles in law that have a profound and, some argue, unfair effect on justice. My guest today is Janet Cunliffe. Uh, She's the mother of a, a young man who was convicted of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment with, I think, a minimum of of 12 years. Um, That's the length he had to serve or has to serve before he is even considered for release. And the case at the time, back in 2008, made international headlines. Um, Since that day, Janet, you've become quite a prominent campaigner. Why is that? Um, Because during the trial process, I listened to the evidence that was put before the jury and I listened to the kind of evidence and the quality of the evidence. I'm not just a mum that believes her son is innocent simply because I'm a mum. I I saw the evidence. I sat through the trial process and it didn't convince me that my son was guilty. Uh, And that's not because I am his mum. It's because I sat there and I listened to it it and it wasn't convincing evidence. It wasn't it wasn't sort of you know, the concrete evidence that you would expect in a murder trial. And because of that, I learned an awful lot about the phrase joint enterprise and what that means and what and, and the type of evidence that can be used in that kind of trial. And it, I was astounded by it. I couldn't believe that people could go to prison for life um, on that kind of quality of evidence. And and that's that's why I, I you know I've I've campaigned and I'm not just campaigning for my son I'm campaigning for lots of other people as well. At the beginning of the conversation, I described 
you know, your son's case as something that hit the national headlines, that he was a teenager when he was convicted of murder, um, sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 12 years. Um, is that a right description of what happened? Even prior to trial, it hit the headlines. And even though Jordan was um, under 18 and they couldn't name him, um, it was it, the story was told through the media before we went to trial, and it was sort of portrayed as as this huge violent attack, and it was you know, and, and it was dreadful, and it was dreadful. What happened? What happened to Gary Newell was dreadful. He should never, have, you know, he should, none of us wanted him to have died that night. But the way that it was played out in the media was a very different way to how it was played out during the trial. Um, and the two 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 stories, um, if you read the newspapers and you'd sat in the trial you would think that they were two different cases that they were talking about. And since since the trial as well, you know, the, the information that the press give us isn't exactly what you would have heard in the trial if you'd been sat there. Let's unpick that a little bit, because this is what I think is important. As you rightly say, often these cases are played out through the media. And so the, the public are, are painted a picture that's not necessarily a reflection of what really happened. This is a case that happened in Warrington back in 2007 and eight, where a man who, um, as I understand it from what I read, sort of came out of his house having been alerted to the fact that his wife's car was being damaged and he was confronted or confronted some youths um, who attacked him and he died two days later as a result of that attack. And your son was accused, convicted and imprisoned for being one of those attackers. That's how the media painted it. Now, that's something that probably happens universally on a daily basis in terms of these horrific attacks. Why did this case, if I got it right, why did it make the headlines in a way that other cases have not? I think personally at the time we were sort of heading for a general election as well. And it was it became a very political case. Um, if you if if you sort of remember back to 2007, the headlines were about broken Britain and, and a way of uh, politics going down the route that we're going to be tough on crime. We're, we live in a we live in a time where teenagers are running riot. They're going around killing people, attacking people, innocent people for no apparent reason. And that was the that was the motivation I think behind. Um, the press getting onto this case because it was very political. We had David Cameron doing a speech at one point uh, discussing how a man had died. He'd been beaten to death on his doorstep and left to bleed to death. Now, that as well wasn't the truth. He wasn't on his doorstep. Uh, it, it didn't happen like that. He he ran down the street and he chased people. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't a case of someone knocking on his door and just sort of laying into him and killing him and leaving him for dead. Um but it, it the, that kind of portrayal of of the of the actual incident plastered all over the newspapers. It's quite startling, and uh, when politicians get involved and start to make comments about these things, it sits in the public psyche that it it has to be true. That must have happened, or we wouldn't have leading MPs discussing this uh, and discussing it on national TV if it wasn't the truth. Your son was one of those who was arrested for, for this attack where a man died. And there came a point where you were obviously aware of the fact your son was arrested. Just talk me through that moment. I mean, you're a mother who is going about her daily life, I suspect, and then all of a sudden you get a knock on the door from the police or some authorities saying your son's been arrested, not only arrested, but arrested of one of the most 
horrific crimes, murder. Take me back to that moment and describe to me what happened. Well, originally it was a phone call on my mobile phone and it was a, it was an unknown number. So when I answered the phone, um, the person at the other side said, Mrs. Cunliffe. So instantly I knew this was obviously either a hospital or a police station. Uh, but my phone battery went, uh, so I couldn't continue the conversation. So I spent the whole evening calling police stations uh, because I thought that this was something that had happened to one of my children. I thought that maybe they'd been injured or they'd had an accident um, and that I had to find out where this call was coming from. Eventually, I did get through to the police, one of the police stations and, and the police officer on the phone actually said, I wouldn't worry too much. We've got both of your sons here. There's been a Section 18 and it's quite clear to, to just looking at them. It, it, they can't be involved. We've arrested 25 people. We brought 25 people in. And it's quite clear to me, just looking at them, they're not involved. But you will have to come to the police station. We're going to question them. Um, and she even said, don't arrive until late in the afternoon because they're going to go through lots of other people first. Uh, so I, I went I went to the police station, um, obviously, immediately because... You know, I was really concerned. I didn't know what a Section 18 was, let alone, you know, what had happened. So I got there and I watched other ki other kids, family members going in and out and disappearing. And uh, some of them taking their youngsters home and their teenagers home. Um, and we were kind of one of the last to, to, to sort of be um, interviewed. And, and bearing in mind, there was, I did have two sons at the time and both of them were charged with murder. Um, and I had to sit in the interview um, with them consecutively. So I'd do one interview with the first son and then I'd have like five minutes break and I'd go in with, with, this, with the second one. So it, that went on over, over a period of days. And I was listening to the evidence that was coming through from the other, other young people that were being questioned. And I couldn't understand why they kept continuing to question my two sons, because every time they questioned them, they said exactly the same things and it never changed. And it, it just felt to me that they had enough. They had enough of what, what had happened. They knew what had happened. And I couldn't understand why uh, when it came to the, I think it was day three and there was five of them left and they charged them. They charged both of my children with murder and it just like sort of, on what basis? I couldn't understand what basis because my first son, Jordan, um, was blind and they were asking him, what did he see? What was the logo on someone's jumper? Uh, what was Gary Newlove wearing? Uh, where was he stood? Where were you stood in relation to other people? And every time he had to say that, he couldn't see anything. Um, they even wrote down his statement and passed it to him and said, can you read that and sign it? And he had to sit there and say, I've just told you, I can't see. And and he couldn't see. He couldn't see the piece of paper in front of him, let alone what was written on it. And that continued throughout the interviews. So I couldn't understand how they could ask him questions of what he saw and who he saw and what colour of clothing they were wearing when he couldn't see any of it and then charge him with murder at the end of it. It didn't make any sense to me. Is your son, was he at the time, is he still now registered blind? I mean, what sort of vision did he have, if any, at all? At the time, it was, it, if you're, you're, you're classed as blinded, you can see less than 10, if you have less than 10% vision. And Jordan had less than 10% vision in both of his eyes. 
What, what does that mean to, to someone like me who, who can see? And does that mean that as I'm looking at you right now through this Zoom call, I can see you fully? But if I was registered blind or seeing less than 10%, I would not be able to see what I'm seeing right now. You wouldn't be able to see the device that you're looking at. You wouldn't be able to see the laptop or the computer or the, or the phone. Um, he could see light because his optic nerve wasn't, wasn't, um, was still intact. Uh, but what it, the condition he has is, is where the, the lens of the eye is so distorted and so thick and so full of scars that proper vision like you and I have, he didn't have that. So if anything, um, if something was quite close to him, it would just be a blob or a shadow. So we wouldn't know the difference between a wheelie bin and a human being. And that's key, Janet, isn't it? Because for me, you're saying, and the case itself describes the beating of a man to death. Now, your son would have to see the man in order to take part in this beating that led to the man losing his life. But if he couldn't see, he couldn't see the human being in front of him, how could he have inflicted blows on this individual that died? I mean, unfold that for me. If he couldn't see the victim to, to attack the victim, he wouldn't know whether he was attacking, attacking who he was attacking, whether it was whether it was male or female, or whether it was one of his own friends. It doesn't make sense. Um, <clears throat> and, and the other thing, when someone is blind and they can't see, someone like Jordan at the time, was was quite um he was quite timid he wouldn't have involved himself in in a scenario in which he wouldn't be able to protect himself from someone giving blows to him so if he was to sort of embark on on a fight with someone who he couldn't see and at the time Jordan was quite small he was only sort of five foot six at maximum um about eight stone Gary Newlove was a full-grown man knocking six foot tall um if he came at him uh Jordan wouldn't be able to see him throwing punches at him. So it wouldn't make any sense for someone so young and so sort of um, scared of other people to actually embark on something like that because he would would be the one that came out the worst if that that was what he did. And Jordan knew that. He knew that he couldn't start a fight because he, he would lose it, you know, simply because he couldn't see if someone was going to punch him or not. He was charged with murder, and you say your other son was charged with murder, uh, and therefore they had to go on trial? I mean, what happened after they'd been charged with murder? And, and what were the police saying your son actually did? Well, from our point of view, they said that both of them had murdered Gary Newlove. That's it. They both murdered him. Um, so... His defence, both of their defence, was that they hadn't murdered Gary Newlove. And um, my my second son who was charged, his defence all along was that he wasn't there at the time. He'd walked down the street. He hadn't seen any altercation, any argument, anyone chasing them up the street, and that he wasn't at the scene at the time when this had happened. And he maintained that in every every statement that, that was written, and he maintained that during the trial process that he wasn't there. Um, fortunately for him, one of the other boys, um, one of the other defendants during his um, cross-examination actually said that. And I think that's the only reason why my other son wasn't found guilty as well, because his evidence was that after it had all happened, he'd made his way to Park Fields and that he had actually jumped out sort of to scare him 
because that's the kind of thing that ki- you know kids do. And he was at that age where you do jump out of a bush and you scare your friend when he arrives. But he'd been hiding in a bush waiting because he was completely oblivious to everything that had happened. And he jumped out, unbeknowing to him what had happened 10 minutes earlier on the street because he wasn't there. But throughout the trial, he had to maintain that that he wasn't there. So he couldn't give evidence. He couldn't give evidence either as to what had happened and what had happened at the scene. Even though other young people, in their statements, in order not to get themselves into trouble themselves, had sort of named lots of different people um, and lots of different sort of identities of what clothing they were wearing. And they got it wrong. A lot, most of them, pretty much all of them have got it wrong when they, when they sort of tried to identify Jordan, for instance. You know, they, they had him in a hooded top with goggles on and, 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 and he was wearing sort of boots and all kinds of, and a pair of jeans. He was actually wearing a pair of shorts, a t-shirt with a huge logo on it of a, of a shoe, uh, and no, no, no footwear at all. Um, so even people that tried to identify him couldn't. He was the only one who wasn't wearing shoes, but yet no one seemed to be able to identify the one person um, who they had, had charged. You, you talked about Jordan not having shoes on. Why didn't he have shoes on? I mean, what, what was that in the case? He didn't have shoes on. Why didn't he have shoes on at the time? He didn't have any shoes on because one of the young girls that he was with had a. Um, she got she got new shoes herself, and the and the heels were rubbing at the back. Uh, so because and he's got quite small feet as well so his feet were the same size so he gave her his shoes um, and he would rather walk barefoot than see his, his, his friend you know with sore feet that's the kind of guy he was you know that's the kind of person he still is well it paints a completely different picture of a young man kicking a man to death as opposed to giving his shoes out of concern for a young girl that suggests a caring young man as opposed to this feral youth that was painted by, by the media. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and, and one of the reasons why they, I mean, because Stephen had lost his shoe under Gary Newlove's body and Jordan wasn't wearing any shoes, that was a really good way of confusing the whole event as well, wasn't it? They actually found the blood of the girl in his shoe because he wasn't lying. So of the 25 suspects that the police originally arrested and questioned about the attack, Two of your sons and how many other um, teenagers ended up in the dock accused of murder and how many were convicted and how many were acquitted? In total, five of them were charged with murder um, and two of them were acquitted. One of one, my youngest son was acquitted and another boy was acquitted as well. Uh, but three were, were, were convicted. And I couldn't I couldn't believe that Jordan was one of them because he was the only one that couldn't give evidence. I mean, to me, it felt as if because he couldn't give evidence against any of the others and because he couldn't pinpoint anything about himself, he was almost cherry-picked as, you know, a good a good one that could be convicted. You know, when you use joint enterprise, you need as many people as possible in order to convince the jury that it's, it's a group attack and it's in a, a group offence. So they needed more than, you know, I think, I mean, p- me personally, I would have charged just two, not five, just the two, because there was, there was a possibility. It was a case of working out which two of the two boys had inflicted the fatal injury. And one of them, one of those young people actually said in his, in his police statement statement that he actually pleaded guilty to manslaughter. He actually said, if the punch that I delivered and anything that I did that night led to Gary Newlove's death, 
then I plead guilty to manslaughter. But they wouldn't accept that charge. So of the four, five defendants, one of your sons was acquitted and another one was acquitted. The three that were convicted, including your son, Jordan, the other two defendants, just so that this is clear in my mind and for those that are listening, because we don't know the ins and outs like you do. So bear with us. I'm just trying to establish the facts here. So the fact is that of the three that were eventually convicted, your son is still maintaining and you are prominent in maintaining that he should not have been convicted today. Do the other two defendants, did they accept guilt or responsibility for the for the death of Gary Newlove? Adam Swellings has always always accepted that it was manslaughter for him because he did he did deliver a punch. He punched Gary Newlove. And as he punched him, Gary fell Gary Newlove fell to the ground. Now as he fell to the ground, this is when Stephen Sorton has delivered a very hard kick to the neck. And now that is the fatal injury. As the police forensic pathologist said, the one single unique injury that killed Gary Newlove. From the outset at the police station when they were carrying out the initial investigation, the two co-defendants of your son admitted their guilt. Maybe they didn't accept that they murdered him or intentionally set out to murder him. But as a result of their assault on this man or, or reaction, he, he died. So from the outset, they were accepting their guilt or their, their responsibility, their part. So they've been doing their sentence quite contently in the sense that whether it's murder, manslaughter, they accept responsibility for what they did. But you and your son don't. Why is that? Well, it's not just me and my son, even the other two defendants, the two defendants that were found guilty accept that. They accept that my son didn't lay a finger on Gary Newlow. Adam Swellings in particular is, is, you know, and he's the one who got the longest sentence. He's always said it had nothing to do with Jordan. And he feels really, really bad that he's now serving his life sentence and Jordan's served a life sentence along with him. I think personally, from the prosecution's point of view, they were struggling to sort of, who do we charge with murder? Who do we charge with manslaughter? Was it Adam or was it Stephen? And rather than putting that to the jury, because they had, they'd had they had a manslaughter plea from one and a confession from the other, I mean, there wouldn't have been a trial process. There wouldn't have been all the headlines of Broken Britain. There wouldn't have been all the, all the politics that came with it because there wouldn't have been a trial. So I think... To, to a certain extent, I think they needed a trial. They needed to, to put that out there so that they could continue with this uh, political story of how broken Britain was and that Warrington was a place where, you know, feral youth were roaming the streets and attacking uh, innocent people um, who were minding their own business. And, and, and Warrington isn't like that, you know. Uh, you know, it, it, the press made it look like we lived in a ghetto where there were gangs roaming the streets but if they, you know, if they'd have accepted what both these two young people had said in the police station, if they'd have accepted the evidence that was actually in front of them, there wouldn't have needed to have been a trial process. You, you've mentioned on a couple of occasions, more than once, joint enterprise. And you say that is the, the crux of what happened. There wouldn't have been a trial without the joint enterprise. Explain to me what, and for those that don't understand, what very briefly, what joint enterprise is and how that swept your son up in this trial. Joint enterprise sort of means it's, it's a collective crime that you're all involved. Um, that's, that's how I understand it. For instance, if you've gone to rob a bank, if, if there's three of you going to rob a bank um, and one of you is a getaway driver um, and you get caught, 
even though you're the getaway driver, you're involved. That's a joint crime. So you're as guilty as the two men that walk into the bank uh, and rob the bank. You're outside waiting for that to come outside and you t- take them away. So that to me is a joint enterprise. Um, if you if if if, it, if there is a joint enterprise where where you are you are all involved in an attack. Sometimes I think in that scenario, if someone pulls a knife out and stabs the victim, but the others have no no idea that there's a knife um, and they they haven't got knives, it's just a you know a, a sort of what fight. I, I would say in that scenario, you are guilty of something, but you're not necessarily guilty of the murder if you're not holding the knife and you're not the stabber. So what 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 happened in our case was it was it, there were no weapons, there was no sort of foresight that it was going to happen. It wasn't something there was no intention. With murder, there has to be intention. But when you use a joint enterprise, there doesn't need to be intention. It can be spontaneous. And I think in our case, um, they used a joint enterprise against Jordan. They knew he hadn't murdered anyone. They knew he hadn't kicked. I mean. Jordan wasn't wearing any shoes on his feet. So even the pathologist said if Jordan was hadn't been wearing any shoes and he kicked Gary Newlove, his feet would be bruised. He'd have marks on his feet. So it couldn't possibly have been Jordan that was involved in the fight. Did the prosecution ever present evidence that Jordan was actively involved in the assault, i.e. he he rained blows with his fists, his feet, his knees or other parts of his body. Was there ever evidence to suggest that he did? Not necessarily in that, those terms. What he said was if Jordan is capable of kicking a football, he can kick a man to death. They didn't present any evidence from either his co-defendants or witnesses that say they saw him actively strike blows on Mr Newlove. What happened was one of the young people when he was first arrested, um, someone who had nothing to do with um, any of the other other people, someone who'd been picked up on the street and out of fear for himself um, had actually said, oh, I saw it all happen. It was the Cunliffe brothers. I was there. I saw them. It was those two. No one else, just those two. Now, when he then went back to the police station and gave a statement again and said, Actually, I was lying. It wasn't those two. I was scared for myself. Um, I only said that because I didn't think the police would even be stupid enough to believe me. It turned out this young person was actually, they got CCTV footage of him. He wasn't even at the location at the time. So he couldn't possibly have seen my two sons do that. Uh, But they brought him into court and he he was in the dock and he and he actually said i am a liar i didn't see anyone and i didn't see the cunliffe brothers attack gary newlove so from my point of view there and then if that was the only reason why my sons were arrested and charged with murder then the case against them should have been dismissed there and then because that was the only person that had, up to that point had accused them of of being involved in kicking and, and punching Gary Newlove. The other, the other witness, we had another witness who actually said in court, I didn't see anything. I didn't see, I didn't see Jordan Cunliffe kick him. But the prosecution made her then say, it, it was, he manipulated her to kind of say, the, the most he could get out of her was that she'd seen Jordan Cunliffe's foot retract from Gary Newlove. And she she insisted it could have been Jordan because it was a stockinged foot. Now, if you looked at all the evidence in the case, Stephen Saunton had a shoe on, he had a trainer on, and he kicked Gary Newlove. And obviously, as his foot came back, um, you would think that he had a trainer on, but it turns out that he didn't because the witness that said she saw the foot 
um, moving away from him, also found the actual trainer at the side of Gary Newlove's head. So if you put all of that together, she didn't see Jordan kick him and retract a foot without a sock up, without a shoe on. She saw Stephen do that. Your campaign for your son, what, what is it based on that your son was at the scene but didn't take part in the attack and therefore had nothing to do with it or that he was not present at the scene and had nothing to do with it in the same way that your other son maintained? I think with Jordan, he says he, he heard none of the confrontation. He heard none of it. So it was very difficult. It's a quite a wide street and a very long street, and he couldn't pinpoint where he was. Now, originally, he said that he must have walked in front of it and then come back onto it. But the police insisted that that wasn't possible. So he must have walked into the scene. Um, and and a lot, a lot of what the prosecution wanted to find out with Jordan was whether he was present at the scene or not. Uh, and he, he, because he couldn't hear the confrontation, he, his evidence about it began when he heard people saying, who's done this? And he actually walked towards a voice, a female voice. That he, in his own evidence, he actually said it was either an old girl or a young woman. Uh, and it turns out that was Zoe Newlove, uh, Gary Newlove's eldest daughter. And he walked towards her. Now, all of the other young people had gone by that point. But Jordan was walking into the scene. So he doesn't know which direction or how close he was prior to it. But if he was, if he'd been part of an attack, he's not going to stay there, is he? And he's not going to go walking over to people and say, is everything all right? Should I get the ambulance? When I go to the top of the street, should I make sure the ambulance comes down this side rather than the other side? And those are the kind of things that he was saying at the scene. So, yes, he was at the scene. Um, whether he was at the scene at the material time, and we've got to bear in mind that the confrontation lasted for a matter of seconds. It wasn't sort of a sustained attack. Um, as the press made out, you know, with them all there for about five five minutes or so, it it, it lasted between at, at least ten seconds at the very most. The very most, it was thirty seconds. You you overwhelm me with the the, the nitty gritty detail of what happened on the day, and I know, having been in that position myself of being wrongly imprisoned, how important it is that those details accumulate into the big picture, which tells you the truth, which is what I know you and your son are trying to to get at. Um, but you haven't answered my direct question, and and I suppose that's it's clear in your answers, but I need to know from you: Are you, or is your son, and your advocating on his behalf because you are his voice he doesn't have a voice because he's locked behind a cell door and nobody wants to hear him because he's a convicted murderer um, and those that do obviously believe in him but as his advocate and his mother are you saying that your son was not in any way involved in the murder of this Gary Newlove and that he spent x amount of years in prison for a crime he didn't commit is that what we're talking about here Absolutely. He is 100% innocent, 100%. He played absolutely no part whatsoever. He didn't He didn't damage a mini digger. He didn't touch Helen Newlove's car. He didn't have a confrontation with Gary Newlove. He didn't speak to Gary Newlove. He didn't swear at Gary Newlove. He didn't know that Gary Newlove was there. And he certainly didn't touch Gary Newlove. 
Let me just ask you a couple of trigger questions then that you can answer and clear up because for any doubters, it's good. Was there any forensic evidence against your son that linked him to the crime? The only forensic evidence there was, was um, when Zoe Newlove, when he went to Zoe Newlove, she touched him. And that the only evidence that Jordan was at the scene, and he never said he wasn't at the scene. He'd already placed himself at the scene because he'd actually said, I spoke to a young a, a young woman or an old girl and I and she put her arms about against me. And the only evidence that they have is that where she touched him because she did touch him and he never denied that she didn't touch him. Uh, and what's the relevance of that? He, her DNA was found on him, which suggests that at least he was there, but he's not denying that anyway. Yeah, he places him at the scene, um, which, is, which, which he placed himself at the scene after the assault anyway. So... You know, even even that hasn't got any relevance. So that's clear. Um, uh, did your son confess in any interviews at, or at any point to being involved in, in the murder or the death of Mr. Newlove? Not at all. One of the things I said to, to both of them before the trial, if you haven't told me now and I have to find this out during the trial, if I have to, anything, doesn't matter what it is, if I have to find this out during the trial, I don't know how I can help you anymore. I can't help you. Because if I didn't know before the trial, I didn't want someone, something happening during that trial. You know, like, like you say, if, if Gary Newlove's um, blood was all over Jordan's socks, you know, he, had, he just had socks on. So any DNA from Gary Newlove would have stuck to Jordan's feet more than the others because he then put his trainers on. So the trainers would have protected any DNA um, from the scene. And I, in my head, I always thought, well, do you know what? If the people are telling the truth, and this comes out in court. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it from the prosecutor. I want to hear it from you personally. And both of them uh, said, you won't hear anything we haven't already told you, Mum. And I didn't. I didn't hear anything that I didn't already know. So no forensic evidence, no confession, no direct witnesses who say they saw him take part in the attack, apart from those who implicated him in the first place and then admitted that they lied. There came a point where... I, I suspect it was a jury trial and the jury had to reach their verdict having listened to the evidence. And that jury reached the conclusion that your son and these other two young men were were guilty of the murder of Gary Newlove. How, how did you feel at that point, having sat through the trial, believing that your son was innocent? I was slightly worried towards the end when the jury went out because they'd been out for 10 days. Um, and it was quite clear that, you know, they weren't coming, they weren't finding the answer. And the way that, they, you know, our defence team was sort of reacting and very, very worried that it, that it had taken 10 days. But when they, when they said guilty for Jordan, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. It was like, are you mad? And when I looked at, even the judge, even the judge looked, he spun his head and looked at the jury and looked at me as if to say, wow, I didn't even expect this. And I looked at the prosecutor as well. And he looked at me as if like, ooh. And I just thought, and when I looked at the prosecutor, I just thought, you know, you don't take someone to trial if you don't expect them to be found guilty. Um, and I, I, hand on heart, I hate that man. I really do. He knew what he was doing and he took the risk. He took a risk. I think he wanted to find Adam and Stephen guilty of murder. And he took my two children to trial in order to secure that verdict on those two people. I think he, I think he didn't think he'd get a murder conviction 
I think he was looking for manslaughter and he took a huge risk uh, and he took my son with him. Uh, and you could see with his face and the jury started to cry. Members of the jury burst into tears. Now, if you think someone's guilty and you are absolutely sure of it, and every single one of those 12 people is sure of it. I mean, he didn't get a, tw- he didn't get a 12. He didn't get a full jury anyway. But they cried and they looked at me as if to say, I'm so sorry. You haven't answered my question, how you felt when your son was found guilty. You talk about what happened in that courtroom and the dramas that took place. But how did you feel as a mother? One of your sons is, both of your sons are charged with murder. One gets acquitted, one gets found guilty. So your emotions must have been torn. I want to know how you felt, Janet, as as a mother of a boy who's just been convicted of murder. And then what did you decide to do after that? I think sat in the courtroom, um, I, I, I deliberately didn't want to show any emotion. I didn't want to cry. I didn't, I didn't feel that they deserved to feel know what I felt like at that moment in time. Um, and I grabbed my other son's hand because I was sat close to him and I insisted that he didn't show anything either. I mean, Jordan howled. It was like a, a little wolf sort of howling when, when he heard that verdict. But I, I, I felt rage, absolute rage, that we have a system that is so corrupt that they could have done this to. I mean, just I when I looked at him, he looked so fragile and pathetic. Um, and I felt rage. It wasn't the system, and this is important, isn't it? Because although the system did what it did to get your son in the dock and then present a case that led to his conviction, it was 12 ordinary men and women, as they would argue, the jury members, that reached the conclusion. So why would they? How did they reach that conclusion if it was blatantly obvious that your son was not involved and they could see that as the evidence played out why why would they reach the conclusion well when it comes to a joint enterprise you don't have to be involved you just have to be at the scene um and and they have what the jury get given what's called a route to verdict which i also didn't know about and they're given they're given a set of questions does such a body fit into this category, A, B, or C? And if you pick A, then they're not guilty. If you pick B, then you move to the next question. It's not about a gut feeling. It's not about the evidence. It's about it's about them following the rule of law at the time. So their gut feeling was probably, no, he's not guilty. But when you're putting questions of possible foresight into, into this equation, then, of course, we can all have possible foresight. And because he hadn't sort of... Um, he wasn't able to defend himself because that, let, let's face it, Jordan was charged with possible foresight, not with the actual murder, but it t- took till the end of the trial to work that out. If we'd have known that that's what the police had charged him with that day, that he possibly foresee that X, Y, Z would do whatever they did, we could have defended him against that, but we didn't. We defended him against the actual murder itself, the actual kicking and the punching, not the foresight that someone else would kick or punch. Um, now, because he didn't defend himself against that, of course, the jury are going to look at these questions and they're going to look at what answers came from Jordan and see that he never stood there and said, I didn't know that they were going to do this. Right. So his defense was very different to the to the one that could have been. Can I ask, can I ask you talk about the, the feeling of rage at the fact that your son was convicted? How did you direct that rage once your son was sent to prison? For life, 
at first it was like I had to stop myself from having a series of breakdowns because I knew, you know, I mean, there was one moment where it was, if you don't, if you don't stop screaming and crying, we're going to have to have you sectioned. Um, there's no doubt about it. I, you know. Is that where you were in life at the time? Screaming and shouting? It was dreadful. I, I you know, I ran across the field and look, look, I wanted to drown myself. I just wanted to be dead. It's, it's, it, I just, life was not worth living. It just, the torment, I mean, you know, the torment, the utter torment is, is, and, and what do I do? How do we get out of this mess? You know, it's not like you can pick a book up and work out how to get out of this mess. Once, once you're convicted, that's it. You know, people say, oh, go to the, people said to me, go to the press and, and tell them the real story. You can't go to the press and tell them the real story because they're not interested in the real story. Nobody's interested in the real story. So I had to get my, I had to pull myself together um, <clears throat> and work out, basically work out what went wrong. And, and that's when I came to the conclusion about the foresight element. And, and I did speak to people about it. And I spoke to journalists. I spoke to lots of people and they didn't understand what I was saying. People thought that I was, I was deluded and that I was making things up. Um, so when, when, when we did actually get a case to the Supreme Court and they acknowledged the foresight, that foresight was wrong and that for 32 years that we'd had injustice, we'd been interpreting the law incorrectly. I was right, wasn't I? They did that to my son. They interpreted the law incorrectly and they convicted him using the wrong law and they convicted him with foresight. You know, and, and if you bear in mind that he's blind, how can you foresee the actions of others when you can't even see them in the first place? Did your son have an appeal against his conviction after he was convicted? And, and if so, when was that and what happened in terms of did he win it or did he lose it? Of course he lost it, but um, we never expected him to win it because obviously the victim's wife in our case uh, has been used very politically, um, particularly by the Conservatives. We've managed to get um, a bundle together to go to the Court of Appeal. Um, we, got, we got the three judges um, said no. The, the judges refused your application to appeal against the original conviction? The single judge refused, but we went back and, you know, when you get the three judges at the Court of Appeal, we were in there for less than 10 minutes. Um, and we actually had a witness with us who, who, who wanted to sort of get, you know, she thought she was going there to be part of an appeal process. But it was a case, I mean, when, when the judges actually said their reasoning why, it felt like they'd read the front page of the Sun newspaper, not the actual trial papers. They sat there and said, you punched and kicked a man to death and you did all, you know, and it was like, hold on a minute, which which bit of the trial are you looking at now? Um, but the other thing is, well, we also knew we weren't going to, going to win the appeal and Jordan knew he wasn't going to win the appeal uh, because he actually phoned me up 10 days before 10 days before his appeal was scheduled and he was crying on the phone and he said, we might as well not go, Mum. And I said, why? And he's because the victim's wife has just been made a Tory peer. She's now a baroness. Of course, we're not. I'm not going to win. You know, so we've not just had a fight against the law, which is which is the wrong law. We've had a political fight. Uh, we're fighting... We're fighting sort of, I mean, me and, me and Helen Newlove should be the bookends of the same crime. You know, uh, she lost her husband because of the actions of, of two, two young people who, who attacked him. 
I've lost my son because of the actions of two young people that attacked her husband. You know, we, we shouldn't be enemies. I, I don't understand why I should be Helen Newlove's enemy. My son didn't kill her husband. And the evidence proves that my son didn't kill her husband. And, and for the last 12 and a half years, I, I would love to sit down with her and I would love to see what she thinks and believes my son did to her husband. Because I've got lawyers, I've got QCs, and all of them, everyone that's looked at the case has said, your son shouldn't have even been charged with murder, let alone convicted. So why is he still in prison then? If, if you have such prominent figures like barristers and QCs who believe that the law got it wrong um, and interpreted the law wrong and you have you know supreme court judgments that agree with 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 the fact that the law got it wrong why is your son is it, it and I haven't even asked this question is Jordan still in prison serving this life sentence because I read somewhere that he was I read that he was due to be released this year or last year, having served the 12 years, um, but he's still being held in prison. Why is that? Many people tell me it's because, um, because I've dared to fight, because I've dared to be vocal about the law. Um, many people have said it because in, when, when the crime originally happened, every, every newspaper in the country would have, and every journalist would have to say, oh, I'm really sorry, we wrote all this stuff about your son and we were wrong. Uh, we, we'd have MPs having to say, David Cameron would have to say, you know what, I stood on television and, and blamed this murder on both of them. He only blamed it on my two sons. He didn't blame it on anyone else. He said there were two 15-year-old boys murdered, kicked to death and left a man bleeding on his doorstep. He didn't mention anyone else. He only mentioned my children one of whom was actually acquitted. Then you have Ellen Newlove being given a peer, becoming a Tory peer, and then the Victims Commissioner for England and Wales. My fight isn't just about justice. It's about the power struggle. It's, you know, it, it, it's about the things that people have said already. They would, have to, they would have to admit that they were wrong. All of these things were wrong, and people won't, won't admit that they were wrong. If someone could come to me today and prove to me that my son had killed Gary Newlove, I would have to say that I was wrong. I would have to stop saying that he was innocent. And in the last 12 and a half years, no one has ever been able to do that. What happens next, Janet, in your, in your fight? Well, at the moment, um, we're going to put forward a mercy plea. We can't go anywhere else because every court in this country has, has, has said no. Um, it, but, the, you know, we, we, we took the case to the CCRC and they said that his case, his conviction was unsafe. The, that the CCRC is the Criminal Cases Review Commission and they're the body that reviews alleged miscarriages of justice and they have the power to refer a case back to the Court of Appeal if after considering the application and the information they deem it necessary that that person gets another another bite of the cherry or, or another chance a second chance or a third chance to prove that they are not guilty yeah well they said his conviction was unsafe but we're not sending it back to the court of appeal you you say that you had a a, a significant victory by the supreme court who ruled that the the law around joint enterprise was being interpreted wrong am i right in that and if that is the case why wasn't that enough to have your son's conviction overturned what they did was they put a special clause in that in that ruling it's called the jogi ruling and if and it's it's, it's hundreds of pages of, of, of whatever it is but there's a ruling in there and it's basically uh, it's called the substantial injustice rule so if you were convicted 
of a joint enterprise before 2016, you have a higher burden in order to cross the threshold to go back to the court of appeal. So if I was convicted, if Jordan was convicted today, it would be easier for him to prove a substantial injustice and go back to the court of appeal than it would be if he was convicted under the wrong law. So they basically put a clause in there that even though the law was wrong, even though we've admitted the law is wrong, we're not going to do anything about it. And one of the reasons that they don't want to do anything about it is because they don't want the press to be writing um, headlines, murderers to be set free. And, and we know that's true because one, uh, my um, co-founder, Gloria Morrison, we co-founded Jenga together. She went to a talk with, with one of the actual judges that had made the um, Jogi ruling, uh, Lord Tilson, and she asked him why he put that in there. And he said, and he actually said, because we don't want we don't want the country to going mad that we're sent letting murderers free, and we don't want the press to be talking about us letting murderers free. So basically, the judges are afraid of our media. They'd rather keep innocent people in prison than have the press bring them to task for the wrong that they've done over the last thirty two years. I know that more than most, having spent 12 years in prison myself for a crime I didn't commit, having my conviction quashed, and I was up against a lot more than you are, and that's not saying that we're not on an equal footing, but I, I, you know, I was convicted under joint enterprise as well, um, although that wasn't part of the case because I was just not involved. What is, you mentioned Jemba. You mentioned Jemba is something that you and another uh, family set up to fight. What does Jemba stand for and what's, what's the motto of Jemba? It's joint enterprise, not guilty by association. Our motto is that you're not alone. We support over a thousand prisoners and some of them are children as well. Children that have got life sentences. Uh, I think our youngest is a 13 year old. Uh, I mean, even he, when he was given his sentence, he actually turned around to his mum and said, what does life mean, mum? You know, this is how hideous it is. And then the kid gets lifed off. You know, and life is life. It's 99 years. I don't care what anyone says. If you get out, whether you get out in 12 or 20, it is life. It's 99 years. But we we, we support families. Uh, we explain to, I mean, what, what I've found as well is the more families that come to us, we all have the same, it's, we have, we're on a common ground here. They're not, they're not the families of a knife man that's coming to us or a shooter. Um, or the one that's delivered the fatal blow. They are always the family members who, you know, my son was 500 yards away when something happened, or my son was, um, I don't know, on the end of the telephone uh, after someone had got killed and he, he received a phone call, but he didn't know that this this was or had happened until he got this phone call. So we all come from the the, the, the common ground of our loved ones have all really been convicted because of the foresight element of joint enterprise. What, what does the future hold? I mean, Jordan's still in prison. You're still campaigning, not just for your son, but other families that have been affected by this joint enterprise law. I mean, where does where does the journey end for you? I mean, what's the ultimate goal now? Because you've been struggling to have your voice heard, which is one of the reasons I was keen to talk to you, because, you know, my mother was in the same position as you are now and all those other parents, families, brothers, mothers, sisters, who um, voices were drowned out by the media and the law, despite the fact that one of their siblings, loved ones, were convicted for a crime they, they didn't commit. So, so where do you go from here to get your voice heard? 
like I said at the beginning, I knew that our case was political, uh, and it still is, and it's political for all of us. So we need to go. We need Parliament to make the changes. We need Parliament to step in and, and, and make the changes because the judges aren't making the changes, and the CPS, you know, they don't care that innocent people go to prison. It's you know, if the law says they can do it, they'll continue to do it. So we need Parliament to make the changes. We need to know what substantial injustice means. You know, if if the court are saying this is what it is, they need to tell us what it means because we can't unpick something that we don't understand. And I don't think they actually understand what it means. It's just another level of unfairness to keep us all in prison, to keep people in prison who they know are, you know, shouldn't be serving life sentences. And we're not asking that everyone be instantly released. Some some of the people that we support have actually committed a crime and they're quite happily to take the sentence and the punishment that goes with that crime but they don't want to take murder because they haven't murdered anyone. So it's about, we need to find out, um, we need to do something about substantial injustice. We need Parliament on our side to help us. Um, Otherwise, you know, it it feels like, you know, we can talk as much as we like, but unless the actual physical changes are done with the law and it's done properly, then we're, we're going to be fighting a losing battle forever. How is Jordan? I mean, he's the one who's been banged behind that door for for over 12 years. He's the one who knows that he didn't strike the blow that killed a man and has suffered in prison with everything that prison brings with it. Um, Even though he's been convicted of murder, he knows he never stabbed, shot or committed the, the crime. How is he? At the moment, he's, he's, got a, he's got a parole here in June, September. And he's frightened. He's frightened that they're going to say no. Um, and there is no reason why they should say no, because he's not even had a single... He's, he's had one nicking in 10 years. Has he changed as a person? One of the things I said to him when they, when, they, when they locked him up, do not change. Do not stop being the boy that you've always been, because if he stays the boy he's always been, he'll be the man I always wanted him to be. And I can hold my hands up. He is the most courageous, intelligent kindest generous young man I've ever met and I'm not just saying that because he's my son because I won't say it about the other one I have two but Jordan is amazing um he's helped so many people through the system he's never he's never been abusive he's never been in in a violent situation he's done all the courses they've asked um he's if anything he's well loved by lots of people uh and it's so unfair that he's still inside I mean, he came out, he, he was out last year, you know, because he was in Cat D and he could go to work. Um, and he met lots of people and he's been offered lots of work. Um, people just think he's amazing and they can't believe that he's been in prison for so long. Hold on a minute. Just, just let's, let, 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 let's just highlight that. So um, 12 months ago, he was in the lowest categorization of prison, which is a Cat D, which allows him temporary release to come out and work. Um, but he's back in, back in prison again now yeah well all of them it's lockdown isn't it because of covid19 of course of course let me ask you this janet let me ask you this what what does what does second chance mean to to you and your son it means a chance to a life again i mean he's lost the opportunity you know he's he's almost lost his entire 20s most of his teenage years his entire 20s he's never going to get that back but He's still a young man and a second chance of a life. You know, he could still get himself a wife. He could still have a baby. He could still have a family. You know, that's important. That's important to me. I want to be a grandma. 
You know, I want to see him work, drive a car, get his own house, have a family. That's what a second chance is for Jordan. And, and, and he deserves it. No one should go to prison at the age of 15 and not be allowed to have a chance of a life ever. And what do you say to those people who would stand like Mrs. New Love, I suspect, who would stand there and say, well, my husband don't have a second chance, or the victims would say, we didn't get a second chance, uh, notwithstanding the fact that your son has maintained his innocence in all these in all these years. But those advocates who argue that a second chance is not deserved of someone convicted of murder, rape, or something serious like that. From my point of view, and I'm not, I'm not a victim. I haven't, I haven't had anyone murdered, so you know, I'm, I, I would, I would think, and I would hope that any victim that saw someone do their sentence and then actually become a good, decent member of society, I would think that that would be better than for them to be released and commit and continue committing crimes and and con- continue to be disrupted. I would think, from my point of view. It would be more. It would be more heartwarming to see that the system's rehabilitated if it has to, and that they've been allowed, and that they are productive, and that they aren't causing problems, and that that's what we want. That's what prison's supposed to be about, isn't it? So when people do come out of prison, if they flourish, we should be glad that they flourish. Because I know that if he's given that second chance, it will be utterly amazing. Because everything he's done so far, he hasn't failed at. He hasn't failed at, and he deserves. He deserves to be happy. You know, um, and 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 there are so many people who want to help him. So it's not like he hasn't got the backup once he's released. He's not got the the processes in place that will make sure he can be a, a decent, productive citizen. And he wants to be that. That's what he wants to be. That's what he yearns for. In fact, he yearns for that more than most. You know, school leavers and university leavers don't know what job and what they want to be. He's got that already planned in his head. He's got everything he wants to be in his head, and he just wants the opportunity to be it. And, and we're not talking racing driver or footballer now. He just wants to be normal like everybody else, just the opportunity to be normal. And do you think he will be allowed to be normal, given that this was a case that that was politicised and turned into something where every time there is progress, there will be a comment from the the the, the wife of the man that was murdered, given she raised or, or or was risen into a position where her voice is often heard a lot louder than yours, in the sense that people want to hear her outrage at the fact that your son may be may be released this this year i don't know whether that is something she would be happy about or not happy about whether she thinks giving him a second chance is the right thing to do or not do um so do you think he will be allowed to embrace this second chance that you desperately want for him it's co-defendant stephen sorton has been given this second chance he's out is he he's already out yeah um and when Jordan gets his his turn, of course, you know, the victim's wife, I would say that she's allowed to say, I don't like this once, not every every month or every six months or in six years' time. You know, if she doesn't like it, I, we can all accept that she doesn't like it. She can say how much she doesn't like it once and then let's let it go because once is enough. We don't have to have it repeated over and over again because every time it's repeated, it takes Jordan back to square one and he's already done 12 and a half years we don't need another 12 and a half years of, of persecution so I would say you know quite freely do it once and, and we can we'll accept that and we'll live with that 
uh, but it has to only be once. This is why I think, you know, having interviews with someone like you is so interesting because we get to hear the other side of the story. We get a picture painted that hasn't been painted before. Now, that's not to say that everybody is going to listen to this and believe everything you say. That's not to say that as the mother advocating on behalf of her son is not something that you should not be doing because that's what all parents should be doing, defending their child. But it's not about that, is it? For me, and I suspect it is for you and others in this position, is you don't get the chance to tell the other side of the story. There's always a particular picture painted during a court case, and it's not the whole picture. And most importantly, in court trials, they're not after the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It's about advocates trying to win brownie points among the judge and jury and as you articulated it really did come down to a tip box exercise in order for your son to be convicted and it had absolutely nothing to do with the evidence and that is a a sad state of affairs with our criminal justice system. We all know that good people can sometimes do bad things and, and we can't treat them as if they're pure evil just because of one thing that they've done wrong. I can't, I don't look at Stephen Sorton or Adam Swellings and think, you know, because of their actions, my son's now doing life and hate them. I accept that they did something wrong, that they were very young at the time, and I forgive them for what they did uh, and recognise that they're not purely bad people. They just made a terrible, terrible mistake, and I'm sure they're very sorry for it. Okay, Janet. Look, thank you very much for being my guest today. It's been a pleasure talking to you and really interesting. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to listen to other episodes, go to any of the major podcast players and look for Second Chance. If you've listened to this episode on any of the podcast players that allows you to rate and review, please rate and review and please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. This podcast was produced by Your Vision Media Limited, original music by J Road Productions, design work by Studio Minerva and myself, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.